part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Really quick story about uh, my first day at seminary. When I went years ago, uh, Carly and I had moved from Georgia. We went all the way to Texas. We had involved ourselves. We had... Uh, still young in life, but basically kind of took our life here, surrounded by family and friends, and kind of moved what seemed like halfway around the world at that time, and um, got in my first class. It was called Biblical Backgrounds, hardest class besides systematic theology that I've ever taken in my entire life. And it was overwhelming just because of the wealth of information that was there. And on the first day of seminary, okay, this guy who has a business, you know, my, my degree is in business management and marketing. I didn't go to Bible school. I didn't go to, you know, and get this undergraduate there. So I'm just kind of this newbie. And uh, no matter what the professor said that day, it seemed, I mean, I know it probably didn't happen this way, but I felt like I was in a room full of nerds that go, oh, I know the answer. I know the answer. You know, those kind of guys that just jump out of their seat because they know the answer. And I was sitting in my seat trying to hide because I didn't know the answer. I didn't even know the question really for the most part. And I was overwhelmed. And then the professor began to speak. And one of the first things that registered in my mind that I did comprehend is he said, you know, we don't have, because it's a biblical background, he said, we have none of the original autographs. In other words, we don't have any of the original writings that Luke did, that Paul did, that Peter did, that any of these people did. I figured that, you know, hey, we got the Declaration of Independence up there in Washington. Somewhere, certainly we have at least a little bit of Paul's letter to hear this. And I found out that we don't. That all we have is copies of copies of copies of copies. It's really hard for me to express my anger, my frustration, my wonderment, everything. Because I said, I just moved my family. I, we just, I've given my life as completely as I know to you, God. And now I'm finding out that this word that I've based my life on, that we don't even have a little portion of it somewhere. Through that class, I found out that I can totally put my faith in what I hold as God's word today. Systematically, we went through the next 16 weeks and we began to examine the, the, the reliability of the Bible. And I began to find out over and over and over and over again to where today I can stand here unashamedly. Give, I, I don't always live up to the Bible, but I know without a doubt this is God's Word and it is perfect in every way. And this is what I want to live my life by. But in that moment, I didn't understand that. Because I figured, okay, I need a little bit more evidence than just a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. I need a little bit more evidence. And in the next 16 weeks, we began to, to, to systematically and, and educationally and theoretically kind of go through that. Well, this morning, I'm going to do in 40 minutes what we did in 16 weeks, you know. Or at least my attempt is to bring you to a place where you can say, okay, can we trust this Bible? See, one of the great things that has come out of this series, I've already heard back from three different ones of you. So, man, I've been sharing some of this with a friend. And here's what my friend has said. And it's really ironic that all three friends that, you, that have gone out there, three different people, sharing with three different friends, and yet the response by these three different friends were all the same. Well, that's just what the Bible says about itself. Remember a term that I shared with you a little bit earlier on called circular reasoning? 
And that's what every one of these people kind of brought up in one way. They may not have called it that, but basically said, okay, how can you trust the Bible if the Bible is just, you know, it can't prove itself. Circular reasoning. And they are so right. And they are so true. In fact, if you have a friend that ever says that to you, you say, man, you're a thinker. I like you. I like that you're really thinking through this. And that you're really taking a kind of an attempt not just to say, okay, it's the Word of God. That's what I learned when I was a little kid. Mom and Dad told me that. And so I accept it by total faith. I love those that by total faith say this is the Word of God and I will live my life by it. But I like the, the people that think and say, okay, how do we know? Because believe me, guys, while God is never going to remove this element of faith, faith is always going to be a part of the picture, it is not a blind faith. And every week, what I hope that we are getting from this is that there's this substantial weight of evidence that we can think through, both philosophically, logically, biblically, and theoretically, that we can think through and say, okay, yeah, I can put my foot here on this biblical truth because I have really a substantial weight to be able to, or a reason to, that it's going to hold my weight. And that's what I attempt to do this morning. There's three words that we use to describe the Bible. Uh, I, I firmly hold to all three of these. You may not you know, hold to all three of these. I, I do. I want you to know where your pastor stands. These words are inspired. We believe that the Bible is inspired. That means that it is God-breathed. That God breathed out. He didn't dictate. That's what Mormons believe, that God kind of dictated, wrote on some golden, you know, uh, scrolls there, and, and then the prophet J- Joseph Smith interpreted those scrolls, and kind of, you know, that was really a dictation from God. Uh, the Quran, uh, the belief, Muhammad said that he heard from the angel Gabriel, and that really that what you find in the Quran is actually the dictation of God, kind of word for word. This is God's word. Well, we believe this is God's word, but we believe that it's God breathed, inspired, but he used man. To, to write it down. That God was all over it, but he didn't dictate it. So we believe that the word of God is inspired. We also believe that it is inerrant. Or I believe that it is inerrant. It's absent of any errors. People say, well, what about this? And what about that? Maybe in some of the translations, because we take a little bit of liberty when we take translations, maybe this word could be adjusted here and there. I'll give you that. But for the most part, when we go back to what we call the original autographs, when we go back to what Paul sent over to the Ephesians, when we go back to what Luke wrote in the gospel that he wrote, we believe that it was God-breathed, God-inspired, and that it is perfect, that there is not error in the Bible. And that leads us to one other word that we often use, and that is that it's infallible. Not only is it without error, but it is incapable of error. And a lot of those times, people kind of run those two words together, but they really are you know, separate words. Because it's one thing to say, okay, what I have is without error. It's another one to go the, the next step and go, okay, it's even you know, incapable of error. Now, why would we say that? Because if it is God-breathed, God-inspired, and God is a perfect God, we really do believe that this word that we have today is the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. Now, I wish that we could spend the whole rest of the day just on those three words, but I, I want to be truly sensitive to those people that said, you know, how do we know that? 
How do we truly know that this is, you know, the truth about the Bible? And then I, being the preacher, would say, well, open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. And look what the Bible says. See what we just did? We, we, we made a circle, the reason, and we're going to find what we believe about the Bible from the Bible. That is circular reasoning, but I wanted to show you eventually by the end of the sermon why we can do that and we can be intellectually honest, we can be spiritually honest, and we can truly say, okay, we can place our faith and trust in this word. I am so thrilled that we have people here in this room. I don't need to know the intellectual part. I just believe it. Bless you. I, I love that. I'm so glad you have a a great faith. I just know that maybe you have some family members and you have some friends that may not make that step of faith. And I want you to be equipped to be able to go and love them well and tell them why you almost in this blind fashion can say this is the word of God and I don't need anything else. Because I don't know about your friends and I don't know about your family, but I've got some family members and I've got some friends who aren't just going to take that blanket approach to faith that this is the word of God. So how do we begin to do that? Well, let's look again what the Word of God says about itself. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible says, okay, this Word of God has a purpose. And one of the purposes of this Bible is that we would understand that it's the truth inspired by God, breathed out by God, but it has a purpose. That is, that we would have teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Just a really quick survey. How many of you have ever been corrected by the Word of God? Yeah. How many of you have been trained in righteousness? You, you have found a more righteous way to live because of the training. It wasn't because, you know, I just, I just really want to forgive that person. No, you didn't want to forgive that person at all. And yet you read in the Word that, that God forgave you and that our forgiving is not because they deserve forgiveness, but because we are for, to forgive as we have been forgiven. And all of a sudden this training righteousness is, okay, it's still hard. I don't want to forgive. They haven't even said that they're sorry. But because you have done this for me, God, I, I want to live this way for you. And all of a sudden we had some training in righteousness, but it sure didn't come because we just sat there one night and went, you know, even though they have destroyed my life, I'm just going to forgive them. That probably didn't happen to too many of us in a natural way, only by the prompting of God's Spirit in our life. And so this is the part of the instruction that we have. But how do we know that this is really truth? This morning I'm going to give you four different reasons. And if you have the, the bulletin or you want to write these down, Understand that each one of these could have a volume, not just a book, but a volume of books that could be written about each one of these subjects. And we could go in depth in every one of these for hours and hours, days and days and weeks and weeks. I've got 40 minutes. And so we're going to cover really, really quickly. We're just going to go by and look at these four different things and try to follow up afterwards. Okay, the first one. Why should we believe that the Bible is different from other sacred works? What are some other sacred works that are considered sacred by other people? The Quran? The Book of Mormon? 
Veda for the Hindus. Jehovah's Witnesses are going to have maybe some of their own writings apart from the Word of God. They're going to use the Word of God, but they're going to have some additional kind of writings with that. Okay, let's just take those right there because those are some of the bigger ones that are out there, especially the Quran, the Book of Mormon. You know, we, we see that there's a lot of these sacred works. And so what we're going to do is not try to trash them, but, but isn't it fair to be intellectually honest and compare them side by side by some of the qualifiers? I promise you that as you go out there and live, you're going to do comparison shopping. And if not, then I have some insurance I need to sell you, okay? If you don't do, you know, if you don't kind of go out there and say, okay, we're just going to take whatever this product is, and I feel really bad talking about the Bible as a product, but please just go with the illustration. Wouldn't it be smart, wouldn't it be wise if we go out there to get a product, to buy a car, that we would at least compare it to other cars and say, what, what is the miles per gallon? What is the warranty? You know, what is the reliability of this car? And all of a sudden we might say, well, you know, I've heard that those Toyota cars, those Honda cars, or these kind of cars are really reliable. And somebody says, well, you know, I've got, I've got an AMC Gremlin for you. So, well, I haven't heard too many good things about them, you know, about that car. Okay. And you probably didn't, okay? And so you would use reliability as part of that process. Well, that's what we're going to do here. And the first thing that we can look at is the unity of the Bible. What do we mean by the unity of the Bible? The Bible was written over a 1,600-year period. 1,600 years. And it was written by over 40 different authors. Would you agree logically, sensibly, realistically... That sometimes if you've ever had a business meeting, a family meeting, and there's four people involved in that family meeting, then it's hard to get four people on the same page. I mean, that human nature and human variations, that is really hard when you're trying to decide for one thing. Where do you want to go for lunch? I don't know. Where are you? And then all of a sudden people, you know, just trying to get one place that four people agree on and something simplistic like that is hard enough. Can you imagine that over a 1,600-year period, 40 different authors, and yet they have written this book that at times you can say, well, you know, the Old Testament is different from the New Testament. It is and it's not. Spurgeon said this. Spurgeon said, the great preacher said, there is a scarlet thread that goes all the way through the Bible. It starts in Genesis and it goes all the way through Revelation. What he's talking about is the gospel. What he's talking about is the story of a loving God who loved us so much that even in our rebellion that he provided a way for us to come to know him and to live with him forevermore. And you can see that in every book of the Bible. Jesus is there in every book of the Bible. You want to know, I think he's just in the New Testament. No, he's there in every book of the Bible in some form or fashion. And so you have this, this theme that runs through the Bible even though it was written over 1,600 years. Isn't that amazing that we would go back and have something that was, has that kind of length of authorship and this many authors, and yet it would come together? The other thing that kind of makes it amazing is that these were not all scholars. It'd be one thing if you went to the school of Bible writing, 
And I went, and you went, and Radley, you went, and Taylor, you went, and we all went to the Bible School of Writing. And so, as you graduated, you're a young guy, I'm an old guy, that I graduated and I wrote some things, but then you come along and you have a whole different class of people, a whole different generation. But you went to the same school. You had the same kind of background. So you're going to learn from the people that have already been there. That'd be one thing. And yet, that's not really what happened. We had fishermen. We had tax collectors. We had prophets. We had the very scholarly. We had a Pharisee. We see this variety of people. They didn't go to Bible writing school. Hey, you want to write a book of the Bible? Here's your school. You can get this degree. These guys are just out there. And God calls them. And God breathes His Word into their life. And they write it down. And we collect those over 1,600 years, 40 different people. And we have them today. And we call it the Bible. Guys, it's the most amazing thing when you really think logically. You don't even have to think spiritually through it. When you just think logically through that, that's amazing. The variety of backgrounds that they came from. We begin to see this and we begin to to say, well, how does that stack up against the Quran? Now, when I say this, guys, please hear my heart. Mine isn't to throw other sacred books in a dishonorable way under the bus. My point is, I have belief in the Bible. I do not have belief in the Quran. I do not put my faith and my trust in the Book of Mormon. I'll be very honest with you. But my calling is not to be disrespectful of other people and their beliefs. Mine is to love people and, and to reason them uh, just as much as they could throw the Bible underneath the bus. But how, when we take these logical things and say, okay, what about the Quran? Well, Muhammad does believe, I mean, the, the, the history goes that Muhammad, he writes down uh, one person writing over a number of years that the word was revealed to him, it was recited by an angel to him from Allah. Not 40 different authors, one author. And one way you would think, okay, that's really good for efficiency and consistency. Same with the Book of Mormon. One author, Joseph Smith, who believes that the angel Moroni showed him these golden tablets. The golden tablets were written in a language that we've never found, Reformed Egyptian. We've never found an example of that anywhere in the world. And yet that's what he says that they were, and that he was able to translate from Reformed Egyptian, this non-existent language, into the Book of Mormon. Again, please don't hear me throwing, you know, dispersion on them and making fun of them. I'm just going, it doesn't stack up. If we just took that one thing, I have more evidence to believe in something that was written over a 1600 period time by 40 different authors, and yet it still meshes, I'm going, this is miraculous. Let's go into the next one because of time. Historical accuracy of the Bible. The Bible was written by so many different people, so many different times, came from three different continents. So it's not like everybody in Boston, Massachusetts, gets together and says, okay, here's our story going to be. Three different continents that these people came from. Different languages. The Bible is written from three different languages, Hebrew and Greek, and a little bit of Aramaic. So even different people groups, different backgrounds, and they come together. And yet we begin to see that the Bible, when it says something, has proven to be really 100% historically accurate. Are there some things that the Bible mentions that we have not found? 
Yes. Has there ever been something that the Bible mentions that has been contradicted once we find out the history? No. It's kind of amazing, guys. Would you intellectually, would you logically agree this morning that the Bible probably has been the most scrutinized work in all of human history? There's not another work out there that has had so many eyes, intelligent people, both trying to prove it and to disprove it. It has got more attraction than any, even over the Quran and even over the Book of Mormon. More people looking at that, and yet when we look at the history, we see that it is very historically accurate. Someone might say, well, you know, I've heard that there's a lot of contradictions in the Bible with historical records. How do you explain that? First of all, very minimal, and most of those have been explained and can be explained. Well, I don't know. No, we're talking about minimal things, guys. Let me give you a couple of examples of what have happened, has happened just in the last couple, well, let's say, centuries. There's this part in the Bible, the Old Testament, makes several mentions of this people group called the Hittites. Have you ever heard the Hittites? The Jebusites, the Canaanites. All these ites are back there, okay? And so this, the Hittites were these people, and uh, they're mentioned. I mean, we could find Cana, we could find, you know, these Jebusites. Could never find these Hittites. People looked, couldn't find it. No historical evidence. They looked, archaeologists couldn't find them, never could find them. And so they kind of, you know, yeah, we can prove these 99, but what about this one? And people wanted to stick on that one that they couldn't prove. Long comes, and, and I'm going to look at my notes so I can get the exact date, um, 1906. I don't know why I look down, because I can't see it anyway without my glasses. So, But it is 1906, because I, I printed it pretty la- uh, largely there. This guy's on an archaeological tour, and, and he begins to uncover this right here. There's a whole city there. There's a castle there. There's six temples there. There's one place where they have ten thousand tablets of information writings and guess what they find out when they start reading that and they take the time to decipher you know from this foreign language into something that is understandable guess where this place is guess who these people were the hittites 1906 this is relevantly really new history a lot of other history man we can't find these these hittites all of a sudden we start digging, we find out, there's the Hittites. So, well, Bobby, you know, that's, that could just be quint. No, it's fact, guys. Now, again, please don't hear dispersion here. The Book of Mormon mentions city after city after city after city. People group after people group after people group after people group. In a very modern age, okay? We're talking like in the last couple hundred years. And the Book of Mormon is basically this foretelling of what happened before, you know, the Europeans got here. What happened with Native Americans and how Christ came and there was this people group there. And uh, it's a lot more involved than that. But basically, here's this, you know, this record of all these people back in America before Europeans were here calling it America. How many of those cities, how many of those people groups that have these tribes that are mentioned in the Book of Mormon have we found archaeological evidence for? Zero. You're right, Mr. Dustin. Not one or two. Not three or four. 
Now, folks, this is right here in the country where we live. Okay, you would think that somebody digging around with all the development that we have, that somewhere, if, if there really had been this people just a couple hundred years ago or several hundred years ago, that somewhere we'd be digging up. I mean, if we can find the Hittites from the Old Testament, certainly we can find some of these other tribes, and we haven't found it. Not trying to make fun. I'm just saying if we take the same evidence and we put it to the same critical test, all of a sudden we find out that the Bible is very, very reliable in this testing. There was this other uh, time in Daniel chapter 5. It talks about, you know, those old long names of the kings and stuff. And there's this one uh, king that is mentioned there in Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar. And yet when they went back and looked at historical records outside of the Bible, we're just going to go look at history books. They couldn't find that name. In fact, they found out that from that time frame, there was another person who was king. And I may not get this right, but Nabadabadu is probably closer to the authentic than you would believe. But they mentioned this king that's back there, and they're going, no, we have historical records outside of the Bible that says that he was king during this time. And so a lot of people says, ah, conflict, okay, the Bible's wrong. And then all of a sudden, back in the early 1900s, late 1800s, early 1900s, on several archaeological digs, they start digging and they find these different, uh, they find, this is one of the pieces they found, uh, three tablets, and all of a sudden, again, I wouldn't be able to make sense out of that, but really smart people could decipher that and take it from that language and put it back into a language that we can understand. And they found out that there was this king called Nabadabadu, or whatever we're going to go with, okay? This real king that was mentioned in this extra-biblical record. But that he went off to war with his folks, uh, with his people, and they were fighting the war. And when he was gone, he placed his son in the reign of kingship. Guess what the son's name was? Belshazzar. And so we have something that's outside of the Bible proving what the Bible said. And yet for hundreds of years, people didn't have that information. I could go on and on and on and on about this. And I could give you so many different ways that history has the the archaeology and all these things have been proven. And they have found these places. And the Bible lines up. Test number two. Test number three. The preservation of the Bible. One of the amazing truths of the Bible is that it's found uh, and has been preserved for over thousands of years. Uh, how many of you, uh, and you can only answer this if you're 50 or older, how many of you still have some love letters from your teenage years? Okay, wonderful. Okay. How many of you can find your tax records from the 1980s? There are some people that, man, they're methodical. Man, they keep everything. How many of you can't find last week's whatever? Yeah, okay. (laughs) So we have a variety of people that have different skills in keeping things and kind of keeping a chronological record of your life. Some people were very meticulous. And uh, when we were uh, kind of cleaning out the house after Carly's mom passed, we found things from her childhood that were just amazing. You know, we're going, why did she keep this? Because she loved her daughters and... This was a cute little picture that her daughter had drawn. And so we found all these different things that recorded that at one time, 
Carly was a little kid and thought like a little kid. And we have a chronological, chronological record that kind of goes what we already knew, that she was the daughter and that she grew up in this home. Well, when you go back thousands of years, you can imagine that that gets a little bit more difficult. That the longer the time, the more, okay, how does this get preserved? And this was one of the things that I think was one of those greatest aha moments in that biblical backgrounds class. That I began to find out that, yes, we don't have any of what we call the original autographs. We do not have Moses, you know, this picture of Moses with the Ten Commandments. <laughs> we don't have the writings of Paul when he's saying, Dear Timothy. Well, we have is copies of copies of copies. But I began to find out how they actually did that. And it was kind of amazing. I mean, they were stringent in their copying of these texts because they considered them to be sacred text. And so they would do crazy things like this. I'll just give you a couple of them. They would kind of, you know, here's the, uh, the copy from the original, maybe two generations old. And as they're making it for the third generation, they would go, they go line by line, letter by letter, stroke by stroke. And if they messed up, even a little bit, if they messed up just a little bit, they would destroy that. They just wouldn't do it like this and then throw it in the trash can. They would take it, go burn it, and then they would take all the ashes from that and scatter them in different places so that somebody wouldn't come back and go, you know, I found all these ashes and I'm going to put this incorrect version out there. They would do other things. They would count all the letters. Here's a page from my notes this morning. And if I was going to copy that over, they would count the number of letters on there and make sure that then they would count the number of letters on this one over here. Then they would count what the center letter was, the middle letter, and make sure that if it was a D here that was in the middle of all these letters, that it was a D over here. Are you starting to get the drift? These people didn't just go, no, this isn't you making your grocery list. These people were meticulous. They were trained. And then we have things like uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. That when they found those, just recently, this is modern history, 1940s. This is really modern history in comparison to all this ancient archaeological. They find the Dead Sea Scrolls. And this is a picture of what they found there. And what they find in the Dead Sea Scrolls, why that was so important, is because it took us back. You know how I said that what we have today is not the original autographs, but we have what? Copies of copies of copies of copies of copies, okay? And so one of the things is, okay, can we find the oldest copies? Have you ever played that game where you have a circle and you say a word to somebody or a sentence and then they go all the way around and by the time, you know, you said the dog, uh, the dog is blue and hairy. And by the time it gets back here, Watch out for the glue. It's cherry, you know, or whatever, you know. And it's like, okay, it kind of sounds the same, and yet it's a different thing because it transferred all the way through. Well, number one, they were meticulous. They weren't just kind of, okay, here's what it says. And they weren't whispering. They weren't playing the game. They were very meticulous. But here's what the Dead Sea Scrolls showed us. It took us back over some of the copies of Isaiah that we had, you know, the book of Isaiah. And it took us back almost a thousand years of closer to the original. It's still copies of copies of copies, but a thousand years closer to the original. And you know what they found? 99.9% was 100%. There was maybe a little scribble here, maybe a little dot of ink there, 
or something like that. And you're going to go, well, Bobby, you said they would throw that away if they made that mistake. Well, these people that were transcribing that maybe weren't under the same rules of this other school of people who abided by those rules. So I'm not trying to give you two different messages. What I'm trying to tell you is, guys, this is in modern history. This is in the 1940s. This is for, for the skeptical age that we live in, that we have evidence that proves what we always wanted to believe by faith, but now we can trust in faith. When it comes to ancient copies of the Bibles, of the Bible, we have over 24,000 uh, manuscripts of the Bible in some form or fashion. Um, if you take other historical ancient writings, for example, up there it says 643 ancient manuscripts of Homer's Iliad. Have you ever read Homer? Okay, that book. Well, we have copies. Okay? We have 643 ancient copies of that. We don't have the original. We have ancient copies. Julius Caesar, his book, Gallic Wars, we have 10 copies. We don't deny that it exists. We know, okay, these are copies of what Julius Caesar wrote. We don't have the original, but what we have today, throughout history, we have 10 copies of that. When we go through these different things, we find out, oh my goodness, 643? Yet, do we doubt Homer's Iliad? Do we doubt this writing of Julius Caesar? No. We said, man, this is an accurate copy. And yet, look at the, just the pure numbers of this. Another thing, if you wanted to take extra biblical that is outside of the Bible, if we just took historical writings that were happening about the same time, do you know that 86,000 New Testament quotations are found in their writings outside of the Bible? 99.3%. I think there's only, uh, there's only 11 verses that are missing from these writings that we can't find somebody mentioning. Out of all the verses in the New Testament, somebody is writing about them. And you might say, well, maybe that makes sense. They believed in Christ, so they would use that as their proof. We're just saying, look at this string of evidence that exists. Last one, because of time, the prophetic accuracy of the Bible. Why, we could throw dispersion, if we wanted to, in an intellectual way, to the Koran, to the Book of Mormon, different things like that, and say, okay, where is the prophecy that has been fulfilled? You're really not going to find it in those books. They would say that the purpose really wasn't there. That wasn't the purpose of the Book of Mormon. That's not really the purpose of the Koran. The Koran is the how do you live, not so much as this prophetic word. Well, the Bible does have a lot of prophecy. And you look in the Old Testament and you see these Old Testament prophets and they would say things thousands of years before they would ever happen. At least hundreds of years on most of those. Let me give you just a few. Isaiah 7.14 Predicted. Now this is Old Testament. Isaiah, a prophet of God. God inspires him and says, okay, Isaiah, this is what's going to happen one day. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Who's it talking about? Okay, what's so weird about that? I know it's kind of... I mean, what would have stood out if you're just reading Isaiah about that particular thing? Born of a... Yeah, we're going, okay, look, I'm not really smart, but I do know the birds and the bees... 
And basically, virgins don't have babies. And so this would have been really hard to grasp. And yet Isaiah comes out and says, okay, this is how the Messiah is going to come. He's going to be born of a virgin. That has been actually a real big breaking point. Did you know that today uh, the, the Mormons believe that in the virgin birth, but not up until like the 1940s, they deny that? Joseph Smith was 100% against that, the founder of, of Mormon belief. He was 100% about it. He said, no, that's not how it happened. And yet they changed because they're going, you know, this is really kind of keeping us out of the, the you know, common Christianity. This is kind of a common belief. And so they change. I've got, I've got a problem with something that's going to change in flow. I may not understand all the Bible. I may not be able to intellectually grasp it all. And I certainly don't have the ability to spiritually live up to that level and everything. But I don't want it to change, guys. I don't need a moving target in my life. I don't need something that was true yesterday and I've based my life on it and then all of a sudden, well, you know, we're going to adjust that. Especially if it's something as fundamental as the virgin birth. Again, please don't hear dispersion against any Mormon friend that you might have. Let's just be intellectually honest that we're trying to put everything to the same test. And the Bible has said in this prophecy that this would happen. Micah 5.2 But you, O Bethlehem, what do we think is going to happen in Bethlehem? And we're going to have this birth here. Look what it says. You, who are little, uh, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Who is he, who is he talking about? Jesus, once again, this prophecy of Jesus. Now, what makes this really kind of unique is... Bethlehem is really this really, 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 really small place. And it wasn't even big in the day that we have, but especially a thousand years before. It'd be like us going, okay, one day there's going to be this birth, and this guy is going to be born of a virgin, and it's going to be in Apple Valley, Georgia. And we're going, man, you've lost it. Where, is it, where even is this, you know, this, this Apple Valley? One more, and then we'll conclude. Zechariah 9.9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the the foal of a donkey. What is that a picture of? Christ coming in that, that last Passion Week and he travels in. Again, this is just a few. I could give you over and over and over and over, more and more and more. But what we see is that the Bible has put itself out there and said, okay, we predict this is going to happen. And we see that these predictions have come true. There's other predictions. One is that Christ is going to come back one day. Do you know the day? You don't know the time? I can promise you guys, we don't even really know the way for the most part. We just know that he is. Some people say, hey, we're already living in the millennial period. Others say, no, the millennial period, this thousand years hasn't even started yet. There's going to be different interpretations, but we see that the Bible has predicted that something is going to happen. Why can we put faith in that, even if we don't understand all the nuances of it? Because what the Bible has already said, we've seen so many of those things come true. I could go on and on and on, and I know it's time to go. But let me leave you with this illustration. Something that will maybe help you grasp circular reasoning. 
How many of you, if you were having a garage sale and you had an item for sale and it was $3 and somebody come up and said, yeah, I didn't bring any money. Can I write you a check? How many of you would take a check for $4, let's say? $4. What if you had doubt and they could tell that you were kind of a little bit, you know, and he says, and here's his thing. He says, Look, you can see, here's my checkbook. Look in my balance. Look right there. It says I have $12,413.12. Is that more believable now because he showed you his balance in his checkbook? Might be. But who wrote that balance in there? Who did the math? That guy. That's circular reasoning. I'm trying to prove this by something I wrote. Now, when it's $4, guys, when it's $4, you might say, well, you know, I just want the thing out of here anyway, so take it. And if the check cashes, great. If it doesn't, I'm not really out anything. But what if it was a washer-dryer and it's $400? What if it's a car and it's $24,000? What if it's your house and it's 240000 And they say, hey, here's the check. Hey, look at my balance. Says I have the money in there. Do you see that the more expensive, the more costly something is to us, the more we're going to go, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know that any of us, when we sold a house in the past, that somebody brought over $240,001 bills. No, what happened is they went out and they got a loan. But did those loan people just say, ah, anybody can buy a house? Well, they did in the... 2007 and 8. But besides that period of time, you had to meet qualifications. You had to prove that you were trustworthy. And they looked at your past history. They looked at, you know, your ability, how much you have in the bank. They looked at all these different qualifications to see if you were trustworthy to get this loan to pay for this house. And nobody had a problem with it because we want somebody buying our house. We want that deal to go through. And we want to base our, this decision of buying the next house on the trustworthiest that we just sold this house and that it's going to go through. You following with me? The higher the stake, the more we go, hey, I want to make sure. If you're going to give your life to this, guys, ooh. if you're going to give your life to this, do not... Do not be afraid to put it through the test. It's still going to require faith. God's never going to take the element of faith out. But be willing to be logical. It's not, you're not a bad Christian if you're going, you know, I'm kind of skeptical about this. That's okay. You're basing your whole life on it. This is more valuable than your $240,000 house. You better do some investigation. That's called wisdom in my, where I come from. And so put it to the test. But when you put it to the test and you put the other sacred writings of the world, or you put a nothingness there, if you're just an agnostic or an atheist, or you say, okay, I'm just going to test it against, make sure that you're doing the same test across the board. And I promise you, I promise you, that this book, the Word of God, will stand so far above everything else. And it won't be a blind faith. It will be a very, very sure faith. 
And you can say, when it says this, I may not like it because this is a hard thing that it just called for me to do in my life, to forgive somebody who I, I don't really love that much anymore. But I'm going to do it. Why? Because I trust that this is the Word of God written for me. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we love you and we thank you. Father, I, I pray that uh, we've had to run so fast through this and it's so important. And yet, Father, I, I just trust you to take these things and at least start conversations in these matters, Father. And that we can come and explore more and more uh, the validity of, of what we've studied this morning. We love you. We thank you. Thank you, God. As we said before, Father, our, our problems are going to be waiting for us right when we exit these doors and when we go back to, to all the, the hassle that life can be at times. Thank you that in these moments, Father, you've given us not just something to put our mind on, but someone to put our mind on. You, holy God, and the precious gift of your Son, the Messiah. Father, thank you that you've given us your word and it's reliable and we can trust it in faith. So, Father, as we leave today, as we go back to all these problems, all these situations, Father, we sing this last song to you to proclaim your worthiness and where we want our heart and our mind to stay as we go back to the challenges of life. We love you and we thank you, Father, as we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.